once again to the book of Hebrews in the 10th chapter. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin at verse 1. We will read down through verse 18. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, our Father, by word and by spirit, accomplish your good purpose today to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us now by supernatural work 
that we see and hear and understand this your word. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perfection. What a concept to consider, to grasp and apply. This coming summer, the Olympics will be in Paris. Gives us the opportunity to consider perfection in a sense. Some of us may recall, if we're old enough, back in the 88 Olympics, Mary Lou Retton scoring a series of tens on vault. Of course, in our own time, Simone Biles, most decorated gymnast in history, uh, male or female, 37 medals and a whopping 27 of which are gold. Now, though that kind of perfection does tend to impress and inspire us, there's another level of perfection or perspective on perfection that's more personal. And we tend to cover our failures and our personal lack of perfection with something like this quote, well, nobody's perfect. I read somewhere the closest anybody ever comes to perfection is on a job application form. For all of that, there's something in us that makes us ill at ease when it comes to matters that are ultimate and eternal. We realize that God, if He's out there, when He deals with us, must have some compassion or we're in trouble. Now, many of you today hope on that final day, if there's a God to whom you must answer, after your life has been opened up for all to see, you're hopeful that God says, well, nobody's perfect, Come on into heaven. But he's not going to say that. In fact, for him to say that would be a lie. Because he is perfect. But you object. Well, he's God. That's right. And he demands of his creation perfection. So how... Do you and I get from point A, our imperfection, to point B, if you will, the perfection God demands? Now maybe you can impress God by doing something religious, and I think we see that still happening as irreligious as we have become as a culture, you still see elements of this. Maybe you can sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, go work with the homeless for the rest of your life. Maybe that'll do. Or maybe you can get somebody to vouch for you. Um, you know, somebody who will say, well, he's a pretty good guy. Someone whom God would be impressed by. Or maybe, just maybe, if you make God enough promises, not, not too many because your memory isn't what it used to be, but... Make some promises about what you'll do. Maybe the Lord will look at your good intentions. But friend, if you take all of those things and gather them all together, you know if you have a conscience at all, it's simply not enough. 
So what's the answer? We want to depend in some way on our actions, our promises, our vows, our good intentions to somehow be the basis for our hope that God will save us. And what the author is shouting to us here, nobody, nobody is perfected except through Christ. Nobody is perfected except through Christ. Now remember, the author is exhorting his congregation, his readers, to not go backwards, go back into Judaism, but to see the greatness, the, and this phrase shows up a lot, the much more of Jesus Christ and his new covenant. Now, when I say that we have to be perfected by Christ, or you could phrase it this way, Christians are perfected by Christ, what is it that I mean? Well, just exactly what I said. Every Christian, every person with whom God is pleased has been perfected by God's Son. And I don't mean by that a watered-down, ambiguous perfection. I mean the kind of perfection that stands to the scrutiny of the thrice holy almighty God. Now I claim this, is that what the text says? First consideration. We are perfected by his sacrifice. As the author opens the chapter, he continues with a theme that he's been talking about. He's referenced the tabernacle. He's referenced the sacrifices. And he takes this up again. But here's what he tells us. The law has but a shadow of the good things that are to come. There's something good that was coming after the law. Instead of the true form of those realities. Some of these Christians were thinking about going back into Judaism. They wanted to go back into something else. Now, your temptation and my temptation is not to go back into Judaism because that's not from whence we came. But all of us have a tendency to want to go back into some kind of works religion. And what the author is shouting to us again, I say shouting because he's reaching, I believe, a fever pitch as he goes along here that finally gets to looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in the 12th chapter. But he says, the law, as good as it was, was simply this. It was picture. It was shadow. It was image. It was not reality. Now, I tend to think of these things visually, and I tend to put them in the context of my own life. And I go back and think about when Laura and I first met, and I had fallen for her, and we lived 250 miles away from each other. And back in that ancient day, 31 years or so ago, there was an ancient device called a camera. 
Now, you have cameras. You know what that is. But you think it's connected to a computer that is that phone you carry around in your pocket. In that day, they had actually cameras that you carried separately from your phone because you didn't have a phone to carry because cell phones were not common. I know that's just hard for some of you to imagine. And they came with something called film. And you would take the film, and I, I thought I was absolutely just batting it out of the park. I had a Nikon 35-millimeter camera. Amen. And the coolest tech of all was you could get the pictures done at Walmart in less than a day. I know some of you think, my, how did you ever survive? It is a tribute to our endurance. <laughs> but I had pictures of Laura, and so I went to Walmart, and I had pictures made, and I had some blown up, and I had some shrunk down. The little ones went around the sink in the kitchen, and suddenly doing dishes wasn't such a pain anymore because I had pictures of her. And the only, honestly, other than not seeing her, the only sad thing that really happened to all that is whenever the girl at the photo counter saw the picture, she said, oh, is this your daughter? <laughs> you enjoyed that far more than you should have, by the way. But then the wedding day came. And the pictures, while important, fell into a much different place because I actually possessed the reality. Now, that's a way to think of this imagery. The law and the sacrifices were the annual consequential reminder that your sin was never fully paid for. It had to be done over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the conscience was never satisfied. Now, when you think about conscience, and we've talked about this a bit, C.S. Lewis joked with a friend one time, he, he thought this was a good illustration of conscience. He said, we were talking about cats and dogs the other day and decided that both have consciences. But the dog, being an honest, humble person, always has a bad one. But the cat's a Pharisee and always has a good one. When he sits and stares you out of countenance, he's thanking God that he's not as these dogs or these humans or even as these other cats. I find that entertaining. I never have been able to conclude if cats are actually that clever or they're just that dumb. Um, all of these things were shadows. Colossians 2.17, these are the shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so the reality, beginning at verse 5, is of an obedient sacrifice. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. This is from the 40th Psalm. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Now we stop there, and even he notes this. They did the sacrifices because God demanded the sacrifices be made. This was part of the law. They were obeying God. And yet you have this place and other places where the Lord says, I am sick of your sacrifices. I don't want them. Because the sacrifices were not connected to a changed heart. 
Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Bulls and goats couldn't be sufficient. They're dumb animals, and none of them volunteered for the job. Christ comes willingly doing what his Father asked of him. Christ comes laying down his life for our sins. His own statement in Mark 10, 45, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and hear this phrase, to give his life as a ransom for many. He pours out himself as the ransom. Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You can never sacrifice enough to satisfy God. Christ can and did. You are perfected by his sacrifice. But I'd have you consider this secondly. We're not only perfected by his sacrifice, we're perfected by his priesthood. At verse 11, some of the most precious verses, I believe, in all of Scripture. Jesus combines the position of being both sacrificed and the priest who offered the sacrifice. Notice that 11th verse. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. My friends, hear me when I say this. The system could never end because it was always insufficient. This, my friend, is the nature in our own day, in our own time right now, of works religion. If you're going to have a religion of works, get rid of your chair, get rid of your bed, get rid of anything of comfort because you can never stop and even never stopping, it's never enough. The priest didn't sleep at the tabernacle. He had no comfort at the tabernacle. If he wanted to rest, he had to go home because there's no seat in there. The work continued constantly. But at verse 12, we are shown that Christ rests and gives us rest as priest and sacrifice. But when Christ had offered, now pay attention, for all time a single sacrifice for sins. My friend, underline that. When you have a conversation with your Roman Catholic friends, and they're wanting to know one of the distinctions between being Protestant and being Catholic, it is this as much as anything. Every single time they gather, they believe there is a fresh recurrence sacrifice of the Son of God through the Mass. That, my friend, cannot be sustained in light of this text. He made a single sacrifice once. For all time, sat down at the right hand of God, seated in satisfaction. Jesus, having accomplished by his one sacrifice what no one else could, he doesn't go home, he is home. He sits down in the most holy place. The holy God is satisfied with the work of His Son. The Son is seated at His right hand. This is extraordinary imagery. 
Not a single priest thought it a good idea to make themselves comfy in the temple. Not a one of them considered sitting down and resting inside the most holy place, and certainly not the holy of holies. That was a recipe for suicide. God would have struck them down. How dare you rest in my presence? But Christ, by his death, and all of this comes to this focal point at verse 14, for by a single offering, there's that word again, single, once, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love John Bunyan here. Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Christ has perfected you, Christian. Now, I've, I've, I've said, and I think this is true, that's almost enough to make a Baptist dance if he thinks about it long enough. For by one sacrifice he is perfected for all time, or you could also translate it forever, those who are being sanctified. Spurgeon addresses this. He says, we shall have this morning to repeat a truth which has sounded forth from this pulpit many hundreds of times. But we shall offer no apology for our repetitions, seeing that the truth to be preached is one which cannot too often be proclaimed. If you lift up your eyes at night, the stars, what a wonderful variety of celestial scenery is there. The astronomer can turn his telescope first to one quarter of the heavens and then to another and find an endless change in the sublimities which meet his gaze. Such are the doctrines of the gospel. They are full of variety and beauty and glory. And yet in the heavens, one or two conspicuous constellations are more often regarded by the human eye than all the rest put together. The mariner, the seafarer, looks for the great bear, the pointers, and the pole star. Or if he should cross the equator, he gazes on the southern cross. Though these stars have been often looked upon, it's never thought to be superfluous, that practical men should still observe them. Night by night they have their watchers. For by them 10,000 sails are steered. I should suppose in those days, now happily past, when slavery reigned in the southern states of America, the slave, if he desired liberty for his boy, would be sure whatever else of the stars he didn't teach him to point him the star of liberty Know well, my child, those friendly stars which point to the lone star of liberty follow that light till it leads you to a land their fetters no longer clank on human limbs. Even so, it seems to me that certain doctrines, now hear this, and especially the doctrines of atonement and justification by faith are like these guiding stars. And we ought frequently to point them out Make sure that our children know them 
and that all who listen to us, whatever else they may be mistaken about, are clear about these. The guides of men to the haven of freedom and eternal rest. I believe if I should preach to you the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday and that twice and nothing else, my ministry would not be unprofitable. Perhaps it might be more profitable than it is. My friends, hear this. By his sacrifice, he has perfected you in the sight of God. Christian, you are perfect. Not a made-up perfection, not an almost, but he has granted you through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and your faith in him, he has granted to you the legal status of being as perfect morally in his sight as is his son. This is the good news of the gospel, my friend. If you believe in him, he can no more send you to hell than he can send his own son to hell. For he has granted you his righteousness. You're perfected by his priesthood. Finally, you're not only perfected by his sacrifice and priesthood, we're also perfected by his covenant. <coughs> now earlier in the book, we've seen the quotation and the explanation of the new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31. Here the author makes a further application and God makes a promise and keeps it. Notice at the end of verse 14, he says he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now you say, okay, I'm perfect, but yet then again, I'm not. Legally, you are perfect. Practically, you're a mess. <clears throat> Is that fair? Now some of you say, well, no, I'm not. I'm not a mess. You don't know yourself very well, do you? You are in the process of being sanctified. Process. That is the natural, glorious, if you will, better supernatural outcome of being justified. Part of that work is also the work of regeneration. And in the new covenant, the law is placed on your hearts and written on your mind. I love this. Uh, one brother put it this way. If you look in the spring, and I know some of us are already hoping for spring. Had a little cold weather this morning and we're trying to decide if the weather's going to go up or down or what's going to happen. How much winter weather. I'm always fascinated by the prognostications of how much snow we're going to get. Uh, and I can tell you folks, in May we'll know. Okay? But when spring comes around, what you notice is even those dark, ugly brown leaves that didn't fall off the tree in the winter will suddenly fall off. Because a new bud of life has come in behind them and pushed them out of the way. And here's how a brother from another era spoke of it. That is the expulsive power of a new affection in the Christian's life. There's something that has happened in you that begins to push out the old way of thinking and the old way of loving and the old way of living. And that powerful life changes us. Obedience 
to God is the supernatural outcome of this new covenant. We obey not merely because it's required, but because it's what we want. But even then, we know that our obedience is never as perfect as it ought to be. And that's why he goes on to tell us in verse 17, quoting again the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. Believer, every time you fail, there's forgiveness. God does not want your guilt and misery as some kind of price for your failure. Christian, when you go wallowing in the guilt of your failure, you are not living under the gospel. Now, I'm not saying treat it lightly. You ought to be grieved by your sin and your failure. But if all you ever do is go around sad and miserable and talking about, oh, I'm just a miserable sinner, and I want to say, tell me something I don't know. I know that comes across mean, but I want to get you out of that place. Yes, you're a miserable sinner, but Christ has died for you, a miserable sinner. You are perfected by justification in His sight. You are being sanctified, and He is changing you inwardly to want to follow Him. And when you fail, He does not remember your sins. He loves you. Heidelberg, question 60 of that catechism. How art thou righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and I'm still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me that perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I'd never committed any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. My friend, this is the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven. When Christ on the cross cries out, and the Apostle John is the only one to include this in his gospel, it is finished. Now, I, I, I'm always hesitant. I don't want to lose you all in studies and language and grammar and etymology. And that's entertaining stuff if you're a little weird like I am. But here's a bit of grammar that will do your soul good. It is finished. Tetelestai. Perfect, passive, indicative. Third person singular of teleo. Done, completed, perfect. Now why does that matter? Somebody said, I don't know what a perfect passive is. Folks, I didn't either until I took Greek, but here's what a perfect is in the Greek language. It denotes something that happens a punctiliar, singular event that happens. And the result continues from that point forward. You're not happy yet. Let's try this again. 
It is finished. What's finished? The atonement for sins. At that moment when Christ cries out, it is finished, what he is declaring is that his death is enough. The sins of his people at that moment on the city dump, if you will, outside the city of Jerusalem, on Golgotha, your sins atone for. And the consequence of that moment continue throughout all time. This is our salvation. For by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Friend, this is the place to rest and rejoice. Decades and decades ago, a teenage boy whose mother was away on a visit found himself with time on his hands. So he decided to read a book from the family library and his mom was a devout Christian so he knew that he'd have a sermon at the beginning of whatever book he had. And at the end... There'd be uh, some application, but in between there might be some interesting stories. And so he read a book and he came across this phrase, the finished work of Christ. And it struck him with unusual power, the finished work of Christ. They thought, why does the author use that expression? Why not say the atoning work of Christ? He knew the biblical terms, he just didn't know the Savior. Then the words, it is finished, flashed into his mind. And they realized afresh that the work of salvation was accomplished. And this is what he said, if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, what is there left for me to do? He knew the answer and he fell to his knees to receive the Savior in full forgiveness. And that's how J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, was saved. My friends, hear this. What a gracious word. Those for whom Christ has died are perfected by his death. Here is the place you can rest. Believer, what's the basis for your assurance? Him. What's your hope for friends who you see that are believers and they appear to be struggling? Him. What is your only confidence in life and death? Him. Here, my friend, is the place to joyfully experience, if you will, the Advent season. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he did. And he does. And he continues to do that work now. This is our glorious confidence. Christian, you're perfect. You are received by Almighty God the Father. Now live in light of that glorious reality. Let's pray.